Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Anne. I'm Katie. We're friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. Well, first of all, before we launch into anything else, I want to say congratulations to Dr. Catherine Ranham. Yeah, thank you very much. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, what I've learned from this experience is how many people, although David did it correctly, cannot pronounce my last name because now they've all been calling me by my last name and there's a wide variety of pronunciations. Like what? Oh, the regular Raynum, Ronum. And sometimes I realize people kind of like they kind of swallow it because they realize they're not sure what they're saying. Like, they're, oh, Dr. Yay. I'm sorry, but I have very little sympathy. Have you seen my last name? <laughs> <laughs> I have. Mine only has five letters and yet so many <laughs> options for. Uh... Yeah, that's right. Well, um, uh, at least what Katie told me was that your last name is Schönen, right? Um, if you were pronouncing it in the very proper German, yes, it would be Shunung. It's um, been Shenung in America. So what? Yeah. Americanized. That's quite a far drift from uh, German, at least. Yeah, that umlaut uh, became an A kind of okay. sound. So. <laughs> wow. With that, I am going to uh, wish you a good chat. Bye. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, Bridget, I'm going to have you introduce yourself a little bit, but I want to um, do a brief introduction to you first, which is that this is, uh, we're speaking today to Bridget Shainung. She is a freelance journalist, and she's a teacher. She has a master's degree in European history, specializing in French history and women's history. And I know Bridget through our time together in the UC history department, where she became, you know, everybody kind of becomes known for something, and Bridget was known for her absolutely spectacular uh, writing skills, uh, of which we were all jealous, and rightly so. And so we wanted to have her on today uh, because she, you know, our our episode or the season is all about the idea of repairing the world, and this is something that Bridget writes about a lot, both as. Um, sort of an advocate and an ethical thinker, but also from the perspective of a historian. And so we wanted to consult her on how she feels the world might be broken today and, and what we as regular people can do about it. So Bridget, welcome, welcome to At The Rectory. Thank you. Oh, okay. and first of all, congratulations again on your on your PhD. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, Monday. This we're recording on a Friday, and Monday they put me through the the pasta ringer and I bet. put me out the other side with some sauce <laughs> on me. <laughs> Did I miss anything important from your uh, from your intro, Bridget? What sh what else should we know about you? Um, you you had it right. I'm a writer. I write everything. I write yeah. everything. Um, I write blogs and articles um, to make money. I write um, the things that you're talking about, political articles that I mostly post myself on Medium. I write screenplays. I creatively write, and I have done academic writing. It's just a lot of stuff. <laughs> 
you you write a lot about current events and mm-hmm. sort of what is we mentioned to a friend uh, he was looking for the word zeitgeist the other day and we thought of it later you write a lot about what is percolating in the public conversation and you give a really clear and crisp voice to what it is I think that people are feeling is happening around them. And then you make these very um, sharp and, and easy to understand arguments. And so I wanted to ask you, first of all, Bridget, what is something right now that you see is um, a pressing issue kind of here at, at this political moment, this social moment, that's really like what's caught in your teeth right now that you're really thinking about and writing about? I would say what I'm thinking about the most right now is that we seem to live in a country that doesn't have any facts or truth. And I think that's really very upsetting. And I think the people who are purporting it may not understand um, the eventual ramifications of this kind of thing. I mean, we don't trust court trials anymore. Everything is an opinion. And if you push this far enough, nothing has any meaning anymore. I mean, do we let everyone out of prison because we don't know if someone was biased on a jury? How far do you push this? I think when you get in a position where no one trusts anybody and we think that an opinion is equal to a fact, we have a big problem. So I've been thinking about that a lot. And how do you see this playing out? I mean, you did kind of mention not trusting um, courtroom verdicts as an example. Right. But where else do you see this really playing out? Uh, I think it's obviously the biggest problem is with politics right now. Every fact, (laughs) an opinion is a fact at the moment. And um, we don't trust people who may necessarily know better, who are educated on the topic. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone's, you know, opinion is the same and everyone's opinion should be respected. I mean, that's the country we live in majority rule, minority respect. But um, I think really that this lack of the lack of, trust and the lack of belief in people who know better. I mean, we've seen right now um, some of the people on Fox News would like uh, Dr. Fauci to be tried as a fascist. I'm like, he's a doctor. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) all he did was try to save people's lives. He's a doctor. And I'm not sure where they're where they're coming up with this with this stuff. And it seems like it's all invented and all anyone has to do these days is say something and suddenly they've got a thousand people on on the bandwagon no matter how ridiculous it is so yeah. i think it's it's disturbing that's so interesting because i think um bridget i studied um english literature at uc um so i was the downstairs neighbor to the history department and some of the things that you're saying about like kind of facts and opinions and these things my postmodern like radar kind of dings up and i'm like but what is truth with a capital t and and who gets to decide that and i always encountered historians who cared very very much about kind of provable fact and i would always kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of like pick it apart be like well who's you know whose story are you listening to or you know it's all constructed isn't it or it all doesn't mean anything so that just was um coming up for me but i think what you're indicating is also how this is going to affect real people's lives when i you know say nothing means anything i'm doing it in a (laughs) academic classroom right but i still like pay my taxes um and trust (laughs) that the fbi is like 
like raiding Trump's, you know, mansion for a reason. Um, there are some things I think in this day and age, right, that that need to be questioned. But then there, but when we start questioning everything, you know, what do we do? I, I have very I have a lot of uh, family members who you know uh love the police right can't question the police can't poke at this authority figure right feel a lot of anxiety about people who are um you know really asking for reform because they see it as a a figure um that gives a lot of stability to their lives versus other people who see it as someone who very in very real ways takes life so it's like how do we hold both of these in the same way like there are some things that need to crumble right there are some institutions that need to change are we but but then are we do we take it too far how do we not take it too far where's the line i guess no i i completely agree with you and when i when i say words like truth i mean an investigatory truth um not an authority figure saying do this and you automatically believe it i think you have to you have to find out for yourself And um, I mean, if there's anything I want on my gravestone, it's the truth just sounds different. And that's always been um, a driving force in my life as a writer. And when people, when I've been around writers in the past and they've written things, um, even if it's not a life or a lifestyle that you're familiar with at all, you know it happened when you hear it because it feels real and you laugh and you cry along with them because you know it's real. So I think that kind of truth is really hard to deny. And I mean, I'm not, you know, talking about this person is good. You must believe it, you know, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but you know, two plus two is always going to be four. And when you have people who are trying to convince you, otherwise that's to me is, is dangerous because we have many people believing it. Yeah. Yeah. And that populism kind of run run amok, right? When you can right. just get, I just have the most people, therefore I get to define reality. Yeah, um, yeah. it's really scary. Yeah. And kind of on the on the opposite end of that, Bridget, you wrote a really impactful article that I read that was talking about how sort of in progressive circles there are ways in which people will express certain values. But when they come home, very literally, you were writing about when these values, especially around feminism, um, come into your home, it becomes very difficult even for men who espouse um, very uh, egalitarian kinds of um, ideas to actually live that out. Uh, Where where have you what gave you that idea? Where have you seen that play out? Um, I think what inspired me the most about that, um, during the quarantine period, we saw a very large uptick in divorce. And when I looked into it, something like 70% of the people bringing the cases were women. And there are lots of articles written about that time. One of them is fantastic. It's, It's slipping my mind right now. But it was about how, you know, if a woman has three children and a husband, they feel like they have four children. He works a few hours and plays video games the rest of the day and you know she's doing the same work he is and taking care of children and the cook and the housekeeper and that's not you know divided in any way and i mean in the olden days we're saying okay well you know women they have to stay home and cook and clean but that was the only job they had now we have to do that and work 60 hours a week so 
a lot of these women that they were interviewing in these articles were were coming apart, like heart attacks are up for women, all all of these kinds of ways that they're handling stress. Women are falling apart because it's just too much work. Mm-hmm. And you don't see a lot of, like in the article I wrote, 59% of uh, Gen Z teenage boys expect the woman they marry someday to do the majority of the housework. So not a lot is changing (laughs) as far as, as that goes. And you've seen, you, we've seen a lot of women um, because all of this, you know, the pandemic brought everything to a head. There's a lot of people, whether it's their job or their marriage or whatever that isn't working saying, you know, to hell with this. I My life is short. You could die any minute. Why am I choosing to suffer for all these years? Mm-hmm. And so they're making, you know, a different decision. And that kind of, that number sort of shocked me. So I wanted to, to really run with that and find out what was going on. Yeah. That Gen Z percentage, I read that article um, as well, Bridget, and that Gen Z percentage stunned me because there's so much that Gen Z is very vocal about pushing against um, in the older generations and very, very critical um, of the older generations. Um, And it's just like, woo, misogyny is like just the whack-a-mole that won't go away. Like we can't get rid of it. Um, And why is it that we haven't moved very much? Um, And your article in particular was talking about, I mean, people who espouse a liberal ideology that that kind of walk or, you know, talk the talk, don't walk the walk and it gets uncomfortable when it gets personal um, and personal change is what's required. So it's, it is really interesting when how, how can we make this when we're talking about repairing the world, sometimes we're actually just talking about like, how are you, you know, acting and reacting in your own space? Like, how are you, you know, not breaking things <laughs> continually, <laughs> whether it be in the classroom or in your relationships? Um, so this is how, kind of how we've been thinking about things. So it's been really fun. Um, I think what Bridget, as a writer, Um, I think art, right, and writing and language is essential to the healing of the world. Um, What is it you feel, you kind of said so passionately, I'm a writer, right, and you write all kinds of different things. What is it about, like, putting words in a public space that you are just so motivated to continue to do? What do you think that does for the world? Wow, I could probably, I mean, how long do you have? I could probably, (laughs) I, I really could talk about that for a very long time. I mean, my my goal is always education, always, always, always. Um, but I go about it differently than other people do because I think the one thing I love ac- academia. I mean, I loved getting my master's. I would love to get my PhD. I love academia, but I don't think academia has yet found a way to teach people without making them scream and run in the other direction. And until you can do that, I mean, we have people in academia who write, you know, these wonderful books there's three people on the planet who understand your topic as much as you do. And those three people are going to read it and one's going to love it and one's going to hate it. And you're going to be like, okay, that was worth it. I mean, if you, the people who need to hear what you're saying are not paying attention because they're not willing to sit through that. So that was honestly, I mean, I (laughs) talk all day, but, but why I kind of wanted to become a screenwriter because you can educate people through entertainment in a way that you can't through academia because they want the entertainment and you can mix some broccoli in with their ice cream and they get (laughs) nutrients and they're not even aware of it. Yeah. That has always interested me that you can subliminally educate people who may not be up for it. 
So how are you I doing that? Cool. Tell us about a screenplay. <laughs> well, right now I'm writing a horror film, so that's probably not it. But um, the reason this is gonna now I'm gonna come across as a total geek, but like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. When I was eight years old, I started wanting to be a screenwriter because I noticed. So in that movie, one of the dynamics that goes on is that the empire values humans over non-humans, even sentient creatures like Chewbacca, right? So he would be, um, if he's caught by the empire, abused, made to work in a mine, beat up, killed, he's not worth anything because he's not human. So you have all these people watching this movie who are going, but he's a hero. He's just as strong and as smart as everyone. It's not right to hurt him. He's cool. Now, if you took those same people and told them that you were going to make them sit down and watch a three-hour documentary on anti-racism, what would they say? <laughs> Look at the time, and they're going to run away. But they got that knowledge, and they don't even know it. So to me, that is always what interested me about communicating to people through entertainment is that you can get them to accept things that that they're not gonna willing to be educated about either because they don't like the concept or because they just don't wanna be bored. Yeah. So it's another way of doing it. Yeah. yeah. And in, in a world where we have access to so many different kinds of things like entertainment is kind of one of the ways that we can encounter difference safely from the home you know from my own couch you know i'm encountering people who live and think differently um and think about that i'm thinking of one of my favorite novels of all time was dracula um and how that hit um 19th century england like a tidal wave and really had people thinking about um you know just like the getting caught up in the horror and the fantasy of it of dracula but also uh, representations of women were really different in that book and uh, mm -hmm. representations of the other were really really different and it was a way horror and you know sci-fi fantasy very often are a way to talk about very real um political realities for people but in a way that because it's in another world or because it feels feels distant, we can access it a little bit easier. I know Katie is a horror connoisseur. <laughs> um, do you have any favorite horror films or TV shows, Bridget? Oh, horror films and TV shows. Um, they're more you just like told me about one at lunch the other day, I think. I did. Uh, with Courtney Cox. Oh, right. That that was that was just on. You're right. A lot of people were giving it bad reviews because they weren't really understanding it, that it was it was really um, it was really a feminist tale. I mean, for goodness sakes, one of the episodes was called The Yellow Wallpaper, which is a feminist story about a ghost story. So you, <laughs> it's it's really interesting. She's very screwed up and she was very like a wild child when she was young and she's married to this man who loved it at the time and now she's a wife and mother and now he doesn't love it. So there's kind of this this juxtaposition you 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 loved it when it was convenient for you and now you don't. Mm -hmm. So she's also in this uh, position where she has to be possessed by this ghost to write really well. This ghost <laughs> wants to tell her story and have an exciting life. She does all kinds of things like sleep with the woman's husband by possessing her and all all kinds of stuff. But <laughs> it, uh, it's interesting. And it also, because her house was a former insane asylum for women, and we know in the Victorian era, you know, a, a woman who was interested in sex was considered crazy and was, you know, given all kinds of treatments that often resulted in death. 
so there's also this this sort of all all are all women ultimately considered crazy mm. kind of element to it also yeah it's, it's called the shining veil is that's this? it shining veil yep <laughs> good yeah. job yeah taking this theme of feminism that there are so many things about women's experience right that get written off as well you're just emotional or just hysterical oh you don't know what's happening to your own body oh you know and it's just kind of like pushed aside um do you feel like you operate in a world where you're like i'm just a person who is also a writer and who's also a woman or do you feel like that woman identity piece kind of gets stuck out in front of you in some places that might have led to a rejection or a misunderstanding um yeah, yeah that's kind of true for me i think you hit the nail on the head for me i cannot hold i'm a it seems like i'm a woman first to be honest and i sort of pepper everything that i do with that even you know the screenplay i'm writing right now the main character is a woman and that's gonna obviously play into her story to some to some extent so it's hard for me to remove that perspective because we all have these collections of experiences that really influences how you grow up you know, in my first job, it's like, go make the coffee, go throw this away. Mm -hmm. Even though I, you know, I was the best educated person selling ties, but you know, they yep. didn't care. So, mm -hmm. so that's a part of every, every woman can tell a story about something like that. Awesome. Well, and I find that to be true in your um, sort of advocacy writing as well. Like, I feel like the articles that I'm most familiar, your writing that I'm most familiar with outside of your academic writing is actually what I would think of as like, the popular discourse right now is the short form. You both have research in these articles and you have your personality, entertainment, and opinion that are all together and all speak to each other. How do you make decisions both about kind of your own um, self that you are willing to share with the public because that's very vulnerable and also about how you pick a persuasive voice because i've been persuaded by things that you've written realized changed my mind about things or had to sit and think about things that really like i could tell you know my skin was kind of on fire when i read it but i was compelled to sit and think about it for longer periods of time rather than just like flee so i'm curious about cultivating who you are when you put it out in the public mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, I mean, everybody, every writer who writes persuasive writing has the goal of changing minds. I mean, obviously, that's your first and foremost goal, but it doesn't always work. And I think if if I make somebody say, okay, I haven't thought about it that way, that is an enormous success. Once you open someone's mind a little bit, the whole you know staircase falls down, whether they want it to or not. How? How do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> How do I do it? I, I think it goes back to the to the truth thing. When you tell the truth, it sounds different. I mean, we saw the thing with uh, Beto O'Rourke. He when he addressed that guy laughing at at the nineteen dead children, and he used a bad word. But you know, everybody in that room these are Texans. Probably they had five guns under their shirts. They all stood up and cheered because he felt it. When you're passionate about something and you stand in your own truth and say, this is what happened to me, or this is how I feel, it's compelling, I think. Mm -hmm. The truth, right, is this complicated thing that requires so many pieces, right? It's that heart piece, but it's also like 
Beto O'Rourke was saying something um, that was factually true, right? To kind of circle back to our previous conversation. So you kind of have this this logical kind of part and also this kind of head, the head and the heart, right? Meeting. Right. I haven't, to me, to me, there's a difference between truth and my truth. Mm. Because my truth, this is what I believe. And these are the logical reasons and these are the emotional reasons why I believe it. And that's what it feels to me is completely different than pretending I'm an authority on something. I'm not an authority on anything. (laughs) That's not true. Oh, I think it might be. (laughs) But I can become an authority on my opinion on a subject. So it's not me telling you that I'm right so much as this is what I what I think, and maybe you want to hear it because I think I have something interesting to say. And there's something uh, so human about that, Bridget. It almost feels like you're inviting the reader in to be like, mm-hmm. okay, so this is this is my you know the, my perspective on the world, and if you like care to learn about people and and how they see things maybe different from you, like come sit next to me for a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And come look at it from, from this perspective. Um, I'm curious because I teach writing. Do you have a particular process? What is your process like, Bridget? Are you, I don't know, I'll leave that open-ended. What's your writing process like? I feel so stupid because they all have one and I kind of, <laughs> don't. I mean, I need to write at 10,000 times more than I did. I think I would be much further along in life if I was able to, you know, control myself a little bit better. But there will be things that will possess me to the point that I'm like, I just have to write about that or I'm going to lose my mind. I mean, you kind of get that way with with some issues. I think there's there's stories inside you that have to get out. And that's mm-hmm. with with me. I'm going to go crazy if I don't put it on paper and get it out of me and on a piece of paper. So that kind of fuels me to some extent. Um, I never start writing something if I have somewhere to go in the next hour or two hours because it's it's re- pointless. I mean, just when I get into the good stuff is when I'm going to have to quit. And I think it's really bad to like First of all, whatever I'm doing, like if I'm going, I also tutor. If I go tutor and I've been writing, I'm not thinking about the tutoring. I'm writing in my head the entire time. Right. It's very hard to impossible for me to shut that off. <laughs> I got in lots of trouble as a child for like, I was the daydreamer. And it was because I was always telling stories in my head. And it was very hard to pull me out of that. So I always kind of, I've always come across, I think, as sort of a weirdo or someone who was spacey or in their own place because I kind of am. I'm like always in my own head. And sometimes you kind of have to hit me to be like, hello, you're standing right here. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I don't know that I really that I really have a, a process. It's something I need to talk about. Talk to someone who's good at organizing about how to get myself a process. <laughs> no, I love that. Uh, Brandon Sanderson, who's like a fantasy writer, epic fantasy writer, he talks about there are two different kinds of writers, kind of camps, and one is a gardener. Um, and they just kind of like live the story and the, the story takes them on a journey. And then one is the architect and they have kind of the scaffolding and the outline and, you know, they have like kind of the big picture plan and then they can go in <clears throat> and plug in, you know, a scene at a time. It sounds, Bridget, that you might be uh, just a gardener, just a gloriously wonderful, chaotic gardener. <laughs> I used to be a member of um, of a screenwriting group on 
Facebook and they would talk constantly about how they would set up this schedule and they had these like multicolored rainbow tabs <laughs> and they were going to write uh, uh, what an organizational chart and they were going to write an outline and I didn't say anything and the whole time I'm going that sounds like a really great waste of time because uh, that's what I would do I would get caught up in my little rainbow tabs and it, to me all that is just an excuse not to write. If you're a writer, you write. If you are some are an organizer who plays with tabs, go play with tabs. It's not like it's not Katie's like, oh my God, you're mean. But that's fired. <laughs> I love it. Well, it, no, it is it's compelling. You have the th the thing that's in your heart that needs to be heard. Um that you that you've worked hard to craft well so that it's worth hearing. I think a lot of people have things in their heads that they'd love to stand on a soapbox and yell about, but they wouldn't they wouldn't it wouldn't hmm. affect or impact anyone. It would just be a waste of time. Um how do you do you so it just happens. You don't have to stay motivated. You don't have to you don't set timers for yourself. You're just in the flow. No timers. Um, no, I like, yeah, I like the flow. And I think a lot more people would, um, when you say that what, what they say wouldn't get any attention or anything, I think as women, we're, we're raised to take up as little space as possible, physically, mentally, in, in every way, and to not, you know, interrupt. And I think many people have something to say. And the problem isn't how they say it is that they don't say it because they were taught not to. So especially when you're in a place like this from like a rural Southern Ohio, you're, it's very hard to overcome years and years of training of behave yourself and act like a lady and don't, you know, bother men. It's very hard to overcome that. The only thing that overcomes that is education and travel. They're the enemies of bigotry and almost everything else education and travel you know when i was able to take care of myself not knowing a soul for 16 years in los angeles and i came back here at whatever age and said you know what i think i'm going to get a master's degree and it just sort of happened all of those kinds of things build confidence and when you speak with confidence and you tell the truth and you have it comes from a good place like you're trying to help people people will listen to you they will i'm also curious bridget because you have something of a public persona um, where people comment mm -hmm. on what you write. And because you are writing both truth and, and your truth, that's a very vulnerable position to be in. And I'm curious about surviving, putting that kind of thing out into the world, because that seems like a, an emotionally fraught place to choose to put yourself. And um, it seems like you've chosen it. Do you have any advice for entering into these conversations that are risky and, and dangerous and kind of surviving what comes after opening your mouth and speaking your truth? I have been very, very, very lucky as far as that goes in that I um, have not been singled out too badly. I know there's uh, a lot of women who have been who receive death threats and rape threats every single day yeah. for the things that they write and people who have had to move and you know change their phone numbers and all kinds of things because of of what they write um i have been lucky so far the most negative feedback i got was on one of my last one of my most recent articles that was uh, about abortion and i put that on my facebook page now you know there's 
it's a very different politically on Twitter than on Facebook. On Twitter, you have 90% liberals for the most part. And Facebook, it's kind of the other way around. Mm. So I, I knew I was going to get a little bit of kickback, but it was it was pretty bad. They were going on. I was about to f- try to find a way to shut off comments because it was a point that they were arguing with each other then and tearing each other apart. And I think they kind of even forgot I existed. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting how that happens. But I... I ignored it, which is something that I really needed to learn all along. I have a very bad habit of losing my temper and engaging in things when I, I shouldn't that, you know, they're fighting, they're fighting with words that I wrote it. And I have to find a way to emotionally, you know, break between the writing and me. They're not yelling at me. They don't know me from Adam's cat and I don't know them, but they're angry at these words that I wrote. So when I kind of try to look at it more that way, it, it feels less um, like a personal attack. Well, Anne, I have one more question and then I will leave over to anything you have. My question is, Bridget, is there any topic that is really um, grabbing hold of you, but you are not seeing take hold in the public conversation, something you think we need to be talking about, but it hasn't caught fire the way the conversation around you know, guns or abortion or the inequality of labor and households has? Um, it's a good question. I think we don't pay enough attention um, to money for one thing to for how much people have paid. I think we are in a situation where people are being paid maybe 10% more than they were in 1970. And then you're paying 300 times more for an apartment and no one really notices that there's a huge difference. I think that's that's a big problem. And I, I included a lot of that actually in my um, abortion thing, because I think- good. People are, it, to me, it doesn't make any sense to treat um, a fetus like a diamond and people like shit, because what is the fetus but a, a person that, you know, that it's going to come out of and that it's going, it's going to be someday. So it, it doesn't make any, any sense to me in that way. And I think right now we're in a world, be, and it's partially because of overpopulation, but it's also partially about uh, the lack of civil discourse that we have in our society right now, that people are not valued at all. Mm-hmm. They're disposable. And I think that's a really dangerous place to be. Yeah. I think people, we should talk about uh, people as, as humans more, I think. I love, you have these great one-liners, Bridget. <laughs> <I feel> like, <laughs> fetus like diamond and people like shit like just like <laughs> things that, that stick like stick in our memories i'm wondering if there is anything you would say you kind of mentioned that you had a life in la um <clears throat> and kind of growing up in rural ohio uh you know before before you went there is there anything you would say to your younger self um maybe that younger self who hadn't learned to maybe trust her voice yet is there any mm-hmm. advice you would give her or anything that you would look back and be like oh if, if i just knew this you know before maybe things would have turned out different um quite a bit um get the help that you need mm-hmm. sooner and don't be afraid to ask for it mm-hmm. um don't be afraid to ask people things. The worst they can do is say no, in which case you're not in any worse position than you are right now. But um, it's sometimes very creative people, particularly writers tend to be introverts. We're very bad at selling ourselves. I'm very bad at selling myself. It's just not a skill I have. Um, so I think I would have taken that much more seriously because you can, 
you could be as talented as Chopin. And if nobody knows who you are, then, you know, all of that is kind of wasted. So, yeah, to stop being so afraid of everything is probably <laughs> the advice I would give myself. Yeah, I think that's good advice for everyone. <laughs> Well, Bridget, you are a diamond and we're so glad that you made time yeah. to, to share yourself with us. Um, and I would, if we have your permission, I would like to share, you know, your articles on our, our very tiny Facebook page where we advertise our stuff, because I, I find it very compelling. Um, and, and you are kind of the secret ingredient that makes not just your, your talent, but the you-ness that comes forward in your writing, I think is really the secret ingredient that makes it so delicious and so uh, convincing. Let me, let me give you the last word. Um, don't be afraid to tell the truth. Mm. Truth tellers are the most hated people in the world. And I'll tell you, it's a very dangerous profession. And I have wanted to also say how proud I am of you, Katie, because you bear very little resemblance to the woman I first met who first walked in into that grad school classroom many years ago. And I see you also taking on that mantle of being a truth teller and saying, you know what, what you're doing is is wrong. That's not how you're supposed to do this. <laughs> and that's a very hard thing to do because you become hated. But if you can get through to people, that's the important thing. So don't be afraid to tell the truth, I think. Fantastic. Mic drop. Bridget, thank you again for taking time out of your schedule. We know you have a lot of things that you do um, and for sharing your time with us and your advice with us and yourself with us. We really enjoyed having you on. Thank you. I enjoyed being on the, the show. I was surprised by your invitation, but I'm really glad that I took it. So thank you for having me on. You're welcome. Bridget, you're so fancy. I'm kind of intimidated by you, but I love it. <laughs> we should have, I can see some of Bridget's beautiful French artifacts, you know, behind oh my gosh, her. I wish that we'd had her take us on a tour of her objet d'art while she was. Oh my goodness. <laughs> 